My name is Gillian McIntyre and I coordinate the adult programs here at the AGO and it's, it's my great delight this evening to welcome Ellen Atchery to the AGO. Thank you very much. So this evening's talk is presented in collaboration with the Canadian Art Foundation and we have had years of really happy and successful co partnership with this foundation and we've had some wonderful talks, and tonight is going to be an extra wonderful talk as well. Um, El, I do have to say that ever since your work has been in the gallery, people have really grown to love it. People have really spent time with it. Uh, it's one of the big hits of the AGO. We always stop there when we have, you know, what do you have to see in the AGO if you've just got an hour? That will be one of the pieces we take people to. So now I would invite, like to invite Anne Webb, who's the executive director of the Canadian Art Foundation, to come and introduce El. Thank you, Jillian, and uh, welcome, everyone. Once again, the Canadian Art Foundation is pleased to collaborate with the Art Gallery of Ontario to present Art Talks, the Canadian Art International Speaker Series sponsored by BMO Financial Group. I'd like to thank BMO Financial Group for making tonight's presentation possible. It is one in a series of talks we are presenting across the country, and on Friday evening, Elle and I will be in Calgary, where Elle will speak at the Glenbow Museum. We are thrilled to welcome El Anatsui to Toronto, and I would like to extend our very special thanks to him for traveling from his home in Nigeria to be with us this evening. I would also like to thank Jack Shaman, El's dealer, who is here from New York. Many of us first saw El Anatsui's work um, at the Venice Biennale four years ago, where his sculptures were included in Robert Storr's Aperto installation and where Anatsui draped the facade of the Fortuny Palace with the most magnificent metal sculpture, unlike anything we had seen before. Anatsui has been making art for more than 40 years, and he works in various media, including wood and ceramic. Originally from Ghana, Anatsui has been teaching for three decades at the University of Nigeria, and uh, El is going to actually show us some of the work of his students. Anatsui has exhibited extensively internationally and his work is in numerous public and private collections, including the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the British Museum, the Ghana National Art Collection, the Nigeria National Gallery, the Pompidou Center, the Museum of Modern Art, and here at the AGO, as Jillian mentioned, his piece Zebra Crossing is currently on view. Anatsui will be returning to Toronto next October for his retrospective exhibition which will have its world premiere at the Institute of Contem for Contemporary Culture at the Royal Ontario Museum. And the exhibition will then travel to New York for the landmark reopening of the Museum for African Art. In the book, El Anitsui, Zebra Crossing, which is soon to be published by Jack Shaman Gallery, Elizabeth Harney, assistant professor in the Department of Art at the University of Toronto writes, El Anatsui's clear enjoyment of and willingness to pursue diverse visual grammars and materials has led to an impressive intertextual practice. In his hands, wood or metal resemble stamped cloth or strip woven textiles. Sculptures have a performative kinetic presence and clay pots become not containers but sculpted chambers of memory. It is ultimately the humanity embodied in these works that gives them such relevance and appeal to a broad audience. His attention to economies of scale, 
color, texture, movement, and space combined with his contemplation of cultural, aesthetic, and political histories that focus upon African experience enable El Anatsui to position art making as a profoundly social and shared activity. And I think that's a beautiful, uh, Elizabeth has written a beautiful essay in this forthcoming book. El, thank you for sharing your art with us. So please welcome El Anatsui. Good evening, everybody. And um, I want to start by thanking the Canadian Art Foundation and the AGO and their directors for uh, this opportunity to come and uh, maybe chat with you. Um, I think, but uh, in particular, I want to thank uh, Anne Webb, who uh, has so much patience. Because if you see the the kind of interaction that went on before I agreed to come to come here, you would agree that she certainly has patience because she sends these mails, and I'll take about two or three months to reply, and <laughs> and 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 she doesn't complain. So finally, here am I. Uh, I want to thank her very much, and uh, also all the sponsors of. Uh, uh, this uh, event. I uh, thank you all very much. Uh, what I'm going to do is to do a quick survey of my work from uh, my school days till today. And uh, well, I don't know if I can remember a lot of things about most of them, but I'll, I'll, I'll try my best. And <laughs> for a start, I would want to, because I'm teaching in uh, the University of Nigeria at Suzuka, uh, where I've been for up to 30 years plus, about 34 years, yeah, I wouldn't want to erase that aspect of my thing. So I normally will start these uh, talks by showing works of some of the students who have passed through our hands at that uh, university. The Fine Arts Department of the University of Nigeria has a student population of, say, 200 uh, in both undergraduate and graduate schools. Uh, and I teach sculpture over there. Now, the university has a, a general student population of uh, over 40,000 students. No. So, I want to crave your indulgence to start now with the works of some of my ex-students. This is a student who had occasion to be examined by by uh, the scan, the scan that they put on the body to, yeah, ultrasound, ultrasound scan, and uh, he was able to see his intestines on the screen, and after that experience, he did a series of works, I think up to eight or nine 
uh, on this uh, theme of intestines. And the same student uh, working with just discarded uh, material that are in the environment you know, did this. The same student with uh, wood and a mixed media uh, installation that's uh, entitled Chief. He regards leadership as a position which should have as its, its insignia a spoon. Why a spoon? Because he thinks leadership is just a, an opportunity for people to eat. <laughs> uh, this is called uh, a township wall. And yet another student, Uche Onyishi, uh, he lives in a place not too far from the university, so he commutes between the university and his house. And his house is on a, a hill, so he has a lot of view of the sky. You know, so he had the penchant for working with things that you see against the sky, or dots and ships in space. Working with uh, seeds, I think this is what he, he calls it, the world seed. Now his environment is one of laterite rocks, pieces of which uh, he gathered to create this work. Uh, it's about six feet diameter. As much as possible, I encourage my students to use just what is immediately around them and not to go buying anything called art materials uh, because uh, that be a way of uh, making sure that whatever you're doing relates immediately to or is making statements about your environment and about you. Yet another one, uh, who is a staunch Christian, but very uh, critical of many of the practices in the Christian church. And these are uh, offertory bags. She thinks that uh, the church is more of a financial institution than, than a spiritual one. The same uh, student reminiscing about uh, or rather regretting the fact that Nigeria is no longer an agricultural country. Since the discovery of oil uh, and attention shifting to oil, anything about agriculture was uh, left to the dogs. And she is here thinking about days that we had a groundnut pyramids that could rival those of Egypt in size, you know, just made up of bags of groundnut that are grown in the north, uh, which are no longer uh, sites that you will see. I don't think anybody grows groundnut much, except for domestic use. And instead of that, what you have are empty bags that contain things that were, that were imported from outside, you know, 
sprawling all over the place. They are still working with bags. These are the bag, black bags that uh, I think in most cultures in the West they will associate it with trash. But then in, in, in most parts of Africa we use them for everything, including food. A detail of it. And yet another one, Bright Eke, who uh, worked with water. His uh, theme that he worked on as a graduate student was water. And uh, here he is talking about um, pollution in the air. He had lived somewhere in the oil producing area of Nigeria where they do a lot of gas flaring. And uh, he did uh, collect water from the eaves of buildings over a rainy period, which he used for this work. You know, always encourage the students to work with, as much as possible, the real materials instead of uh, you know, things that uh, they would fabricate, you know, so rather than collect any clean water and make it dirty, you collect real water from the area. And this water collected from the oil producing area of Nigeria uh, had a lot of uh, debris in it, a lot of soot in it. The details of it. And the same student working with water sachets. All of a sudden we had an, an, an invasion of water that is presented in sachets or bottles and he decided to uh, make use of these ubiquitous empty sachets that you see all over the place. And in this work he is talking about uh, a, par a paradox, you know, where water which you have drunk into your body, the container of it is now being used to make a shield that prevents water from touching your body. Yet another one, Amuche, who uh, works with detritus from uh, industrial uh, uh, activities around Nsuka. This is made from uh, cans of uh, maybe Coca-Cola or whatever, beer and other things. Now, she lives with her husband in a, in a hospital environment. The husband is a medical doctor and uh, so she uh, set herself a pro project of uh, finding out how much of injection that people take in a day. These bottles are uh, empties from injections that she collected one day in the hospital and uh, she decided to arrange them in this uh, uh, manner to highlight the need for medical attention that uh, is all over the place. Now here she is working with empty cartridges from photographic uh, labs that are immediately around the a home.
now having been just recently married she has this idea of the woman as the crowning glory of the house and here she has uh, a little house that has at its, as its roof the human hair okay now I'm going to start my own um, this thing from my school, day, my school days. And uh, I went to school in the, at the University of Science and Technology in Kumasi, Ghana. And this was in 1960, between 1964 and 1969. Uh, when I went there, the school had uh, a largely Western staff. There were people from Britain, from the US and Germany, you know, who were teaching there. Now, the curriculum was largely based on the Western, uh, you know, models, which uh, towards the end of our course, some of us found that there was something missing, you know, because I think art is a cultural thing and uh, if it's not grounded in one's culture, it might not be very satisfying. And certainly some of us weren't satisfied with uh, the offerings that were given, great offerings that would be uh, of use to people who belong to the cultures, but not us, at least not some of us. And uh, in the dying days of my stay there, I was very curious and wanted to kind of know what precisely, we learned a lot about European art, about uh, Asian art, but not much about, or not anything at all about African art. And mind you, those days there were just very, very few books, if any at all, on African art. Especially the contemporary one. So at times one can uh, forgive the teachers for not, yeah, because the material wasn't there. But then in the environment itself, art was all over the place. And I discovered this when I started visiting the National Cultural Center at Kumasi, uh, where the university happened to be sited. You know, and there I would go over weekends and sit down to listen to music, watch all the artists and craftsmen who are doing bronze castings and uh, metal, uh, other metal work and music and dancing and storytelling and what have you. Quite a rich field that I thought we should have been taken to our students, you know, but that didn't happen. And it was from there that I got the my first introduction to uh, what we call adinkra symbols. Adinkra symbols are, are signs that are printed on cloth, mostly funeral cloth, and most of them would have some meaning. There is something that they're saying. Now they print them on funeral cloth because uh, funeral cloth are uh, funeral locations are believed to be occasions that you. Uh, ponder over life. 
occasions that you have to think about life itself. And therefore, you have everybody, almost everybody at the funeral wearing one kind of adinkra cloth or the other. Uh, now, towards the end of my this thing, my interest in sculpture uh, developed and I was uh, interested in uh, forms that you see in space, as you can see over here. Still on forms that you see in space. This is one in which you would immediately recognize two figures that are confronting each other. But in fact, what I um, was working with here is the negative space that is between these two. And if you look closely, you see that it's uh, this one. It's a, a human form carrying a pot. Yeah, this one I call baby, and it has some biographical uh, uh, reference to me. Because when I was born, I was told that my, my biological mother died, and I was looked after by another mother who was very wonderful, so wonderful that, well, I grew up all the time thinking she was my mother. I was in high school, almost finishing high school, when one day uh, my uncle, whom I lived with at that time, called me and asked directly, who's your mother? And I thought that was the most puzzling question anybody can, can be asked. So I gave the answer that I knew. And he told me, no, that's, that, that's not your mother. And I was most shocked. You know, and he went on to tell me that, well, your mother was my junior sister who died when you, you were a baby, about four years or thereabouts. And uh, this one took over because she had a baby at the time, and so she brought the two of you up, you know, like twins. So I grew up actually with a, a twin sister who went to primary school together, went to secondary school together, you know. And uh, that was a, a shocking, this thing. And I kept wondering if I was four years old, then I should have known that there was a, a change in my maternal circumstances. And uh, how come I didn't remember? You know, I'm, I was doing this work when news got to me that uh, the, my uncle had died. So I went, closed the work up covered it up, went, and when I came back from the funeral, I was thinking about that episode, you know, the time, that day that he told me about this incident, and still wondering about where precisely does human memory lie? Of course, the eyes have a role to play, and the mind has something to, to do with it. But uh, it would mean that I didn't have, or as a baby, I didn't have any of them. <laughs> you know, 
Uh, normally, when you work in clay, you work normally work solid and then scoop it. When I was scooping this work, then it occurred to me I'm doing something symbolic, I'm taking the brain away. And after I finished scooping, I say, "But this baby shouldn't have eyes because if you, as a baby, saw your mother." as a four-year-old, and you didn't remember that you lost her, then you don't need eyes. And that's why I say this is a, a biographical uh, uh, work you know, that relates to me very well. The baby, uh, without eyes, without brain, you know, and therefore doesn't have any memory Yeah, I spoke about the Adinkras symbols that I saw at the uh, cultural center in Kumasi. Uh, when I finished school and started teaching, I started a search for, and one of the first, first things I did was to uh, start working with these symbols uh, that had uh, things to say. Uh, this particular one is called Unity. These are two creatures with a common tummy. And uh, that's meant to symbolize unity because when they have food, it doesn't matter which of them eats it, it's going into a common tummy. Seriousness is not shown by red eyes. What I was doing was that I picked these uh, symbols, which in the right context would be printed so many repeats on cloths, but I picked one at a time and isolate it and put it on a tray. And these trays are uh, normally used in the market to sell wear, to display wear. They could be very big about this in, uh, in diameter or smaller, and so on and so forth. Uh, now, I would pick one of them and put them in these trays, and I was using strictly uh, available technology, you know, that's putting hot rods in fire and using them on the wood, you know, to brand them. Uh, the task that I think I was grappling with was trying to create an ambience for each of these uh, symbols. This one is a symbol of the soul. They are in the middle there. Now the ambience that I thought was ideal for it was the dark one, you know, because the soul is not something that we understand. We don't know much about it. It's numinous and so I create a numinous ambience for it. This one is called God's omnipotence, the oneness or the yeah, the oneness of God. The ambience you can see there has a kind of uh, O there that's supposed to stand for the unity of God or the oneness of God. This is one of the most popular of the Adinkra symbols. As time went on, I was trying to create my own uh, 
uh, signs as well. This one I call the crucifix. Well, I was raised in the mission house, so the idea of Christ on the cross was still very uh, uh, prevalent in my mind. Although I think by that time I hadn't, I, I had stopped being a Christian or something. At least stopped going to church. Now I left Ghana in 1975 and came to Nigeria. One thing that happened at that time was that I had lost uh, the services of people who carved the trays for me that I would work on. So I had to find a new uh, mode of working, and the commonest thing that you see anywhere is clay. Now, clay itself has been a medium that had been haunting me for a long time uh, because the migration history of my people, the airways of uh, Ghana and Togo and some Benin here, uh, is replete with uh, stories of how they lived in a, a town where, which was surrounded by a wall that was made with clay. Walls as thick as this that were fortifications. And uh, they lived under a king who was so wicked and uh, cruel that he would set them tasks that required use of clay in so many ways. He could even, uh, uh, here he even asked them to uh, weave ropes using clay. No, and uh, <laughs> this uh, task, I think they had to diplomatically get out of by asking him for a, a sample of, of a rope of clay. You know, which uh, of course he didn't have any, you know. Uh, and there are so many uh, stories about how the people were very adept with the use of clay. So, all these stories uh, cast in history, you know, uh, make me very close to clay. You know, I, I think that clay belongs to my collective unconscious. And uh, therefore, each time I have the opportunity to work with clay, I feel really at home with it. So when I left and came to Nigeria, clay was the first thing that I turned to and uh, did a series of work uh, called the Broken Ports. Yeah, the Broken Ports uh, was inspired by the fact that in my culture, when a port is broken, it is actually not the end of its life. It is the beginning of a new and more varied life because the broken port is used for probably more uses, you know, more functions than the whole one. A whole one might be dedicated to water or might be dedicated to only grains storage or some other thing. But once it is broken, it can go into so many other uses. The porch at come in handy in so many ways. So I was thinking that the idea of breaking down is not the end of life. It is rather an opportunity for life to, to go on in a different uh, dimension. So I think of a, a, 
a whole pot as a life pot and a, a broken one as a, a spiritual pot. And there is something very peculiar to that I noticed that when my people uh, do sacrifices, they will do it, they will do the whatever they are offering in pot sheds, not in a whole pot. So it's like you are giving food to spirits and so you use the pot which is also in a spiritual realm. You know, pot shed is a spiritual, uh, in a pot in a spiritual realm. Now, now all these ideas coalesced together into uh, this uh, body of work that I did, the Broken Pot series, in which I was uh, really talking about the fragility of clay and uh, the fact that when things break, that is not the end of their life, but that's a chance for a regeneration or recreation. Now, I did a lot of these pots, by, uh, these works by buying already existing pots and cutting them into two. And those serves as molds for me. And I'll work in each half and then bring them together into my uh, form. And now this enabled me to work a lot on the insides of the works. A lot of the, the statements that I did were inside the pots, not outside. You know, because the inside was what was uh, more presented to me in the mold. You know. And I also thought that that should be the right thing because if you are talking about a pot, a pot's uh, significance is in what it holds or what is inside it and not its uh, outside. Now, um, let me talk a little bit about this one. Okay, like this one, uh, you saw that, uh, you see that uh, a lot of the structure that would be of significance is inside. This one I call it a bazaar, which is herbal pot, the, the pot of herbs. And in my culture, it is believed that a herbal pot is not left uncovered. Because of the power of the herbs that you put in it, you have to really have it have a lead on it, you know, so that the powers don't kind of escape. This one is entitled with a pacham, as we are patching it. And it con consists of uh, several uh, uh, colored clays. Normally, I'll, I'll create my own uh, colors from one color. The, the color of the clay uh, that I use is the cream one that you see that you see here. And then I'll create these ones using a, a special. Uh, uh, 
mixture, uh, a special uh, sand called uh, man manganese uh, uh, tailing. I collected this from manganese mines in Ghana, and it gives this beautiful speck, dark specks too. And you can mix so many uh, proportions of it and get so much uh, uh, variety. No. Uh, this pot, the title is uh, from Nigerian Pigeon English. Pigeon English, or what they call broken English, or whatever, uh, is very well developed in Nigeria and is one of the most uh, uh, it would probably rich, rich expressions that I have ever heard in any language. No. Uh, one of my pastimes is to listen to the news in pidgin English. You, you listen to it first in, in regular English, and then the pidgin English one is really, really hilarious and, and, and picturesque. You know, it's imagery-laden. Uh, now, I heard this expression with a pacham once when somebody uh, met, two people met, and uh, the, one of them asked the uh, friend, how life? In other words, how is life? And the uh, friend replied, they leak with a pacham. Means life is leaking, and we are patching it. You know, that's the, 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 the picturesque nature of it is so, so rich. You know, now, it's because of this that I, I normally would listen to the news in Pidgin English. And, and <laughs> the Broken Port series. Yeah, while I was still on that port, uh, I got a very strange invitation to uh, the North Sea Coast of Germany to do a symposium, 10 artists, uh, to work on the theme of weather. Now, living in the tropics where you have just very little change in the year, I thought that was a very odd <laughs> theme for anybody to pick. And uh, the invitation went on to say, well, the weather is really it has a presence, so you need to come and experience it. Don't have any ideas. Just come blank, and uh, the weather will fill you in. So I went. And true, there are strong winds and uh, all the things that they mentioned. They mentioned that it was going to rain a lot, you know. And several artists guided by these uh, words created works that you will need rain to finish. I remember two spectacular ones that somebody designed uh, clothes that she sewed and there are pockets all over. And the idea is that when it's raining, you go and stand on the eaves of a on the eave of a building, and then rain would fill all the pockets, you know. And then there was this uh, chap who had bags of, sorry, bags of uh, dye, different colors of dye that he put on the slopes of a dike leading to the sea. The idea is the rain comes and soaks these dikes and the colors stream down into the sea. They are brilliant concepts. 
and we're all waiting for these ones to. Now, I went there and saw that the place was very flat. The North Sea coast is very flat. The, the horizon is just one straight line. So what I did was to ask for earth-moving machine, and then I built a big heap of sand, a big hill of sand on the beach, on this flat beach. And I saw that that sand, was, the, 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 the hill was attracting a lot of people from far away, you know, they would come to see what, what the hell is, is the hill doing in the, on, on this flat uh, beach. Now, when I finished the hill, then I saw that it looked like a, like a breast. So I made a little pot and put on top of it and, <laughs> and called it uh, the altar. Well, it could be the altar or some people say it's the nipple of the earth. And, but having created an altar, I thought that you should do something with an altar. You don't just create an altar and that's the end. Uh, we had waited for a lot of time and rains weren't coming down. We were waiting for, we were all anxious to see these two works, you know, really realized by the rain. And for one week, two weeks, no rain came down. And we're all wondering. So one day I decided that we were going to do a performance with the altar because uh, you don't build an altar and leave it blank. So I gathered uh, six people with me, and uh, we were seven, and did a procession to the hill, and then I went up and did some incantations. And as soon as I finished, I came down and the rain started. <laughs> well, I'm not saying that I brought down rain or anything, but it was a very beautiful coincidence. But then people started arguing about art and religion and all these things. You know, I did see a performance by another artist, a local from Togo who uh, in Namibia who went for a this thing there, he did a performance there too in the desert, and rain came falling as well. And we share the same name, he's L and I'm L. So I don't know whether L is a spiritual name or something. <laughs> okay. In 1980, I think I came to a, um, an artist's residency somewhere in, the, in Massachusetts. And there, well, not for the first time, because I've worked with chainsaws in the past before coming there. Uh, when they advertised this residency, they said it had plenty of, there's a lot of wood around. So I said, okay, let me go and do some work with wood. And I did, in fact, order wood carving chisels and, and gouges and mallets, which were shipped there before I arrived. Uh, but when I went there, I saw that the wood was 
such that you needed something else like like chainsaw or something to log them because these were huge trees. Then in the process of working with the chainsaw in the quietude of that uh, residency, I discovered that this medium is one that one can use as an expressive one and not just as something you use in logging wood. So I started uh, experimenting with the chainsaw as an art material. Later on, I got to see other artists who uh, have used chainsaw, especially in making furniture and other things, you know. So that encouraged me to explore. And these are works that I did after that residency, you know, and uh, exploring the chainsaw and eventually other power tools on wood. Now, the chainsaw, I think, is symbolic of so many things. One is that it symbolizes the fast rat race or rat racy kind of times that we live in because it, it, it unlike the mallet and chisel and other things which go very slowly, this does things very fast and not so neatly. It's, it's clumsy and can do things in one particular way or it can make straight lines or it can claw. You know, so I used it in doing all kinds of things, uh, clawing on wood. This work is entitled uh, Remnants of Grandma's Cloth. As time went on, I introduced other power tools like the routers and uh, circular saws, which you make thinner lines, you know, into exploring uh, wood. And also, with the introduction of router and other tools which could handle final lines, I was introducing the signs and symbols that I had already started with immediately after art school into my work again, as you can see over here. And uh, having come to Nigeria too and learned about the signs and symbols that they also had, the Uli symbols of the Igbo in particular, and later on the Nsibidi of southern, southern eastern Nigeria. And after that, got introduced to uh, other writing systems and signs in other parts of Af from other parts of Africa, like Njoya's uh, scripts from uh, Cameroon, the Bamum scripts from uh, Sierra Leone and other places, you know, they set me or my interest back onto uh, signs and symbols. So I started working once again with them. It's at this time that I created this work, which has a rather longish title. And uh, let me see if I can remember it. When I last wrote to you about Africa, I used a letter-headed parchment paper. I can now, no, there were many blank slots in the letter, 
I can now feel some of this because I have grown older. That was a very long, almost a poem for a title. And uh, it's, it belonged rightly to the, this period that I started, uh, that I got exposure to all the so many uh, writing systems and syllabaries and, and uh, symbols that you can see on the continent created long ago, and some are still being created by people. There are people who are creating their own writing systems in Africa uh, now. One uh, was recently brought to our university and uh, was subjected to by the languages and linguistics department to tests and found that they had very solid and sound uh, structure for his uh, creation. Okay, these are details of work I did in, uh, in Brazil in 1992 uh, for the Earth Summit in Rio. Now, 30 artists were invited from around the world to create well, make their own artistic statements before the political one that uh, the heads of states went to do. And uh, this is work that I created. We were put in uh, camps, three camps. One at the beginning of the Amazon River, and then another group somewhere midway on the river, and then another group the estuary of the river. I was in the group on the middle, which was right in the Amazon forests, and they had a wood research institute there, and that was where we camped, and uh, I had to work with wood. Luckily, they had chainsaws and other things, so I uh, created this work, which I call erosion. Now, the work consists of, first of all, my engraving A huge log of wood about this in girth and about 12 feet or so in height, engraving these signs and symbols that I've been working on, which are from all cultures of the world, you know, on it. Now, this took close to six, 26 or 27 days. And on the 28th day, I got a chainsaw and slashed through these things. You know, that's the process of the literal erosion, the erosion of cultures. You know, a, by this process, I was trying to contrast the slow evolutionary process of engraving, manual engraving, and the fast and violent revolutionary one of the machine, the chainsaw. Uh, because I, I was thinking that the world's environmental problems are not brought about by anything but by uh, having to use revolutionary uh, processes, the industries and mechanization and other things. That's the work uh, in full. 
this visa queue. Uh, cloth market. And this has something to do with the cloth as well. Now you can see that uh, this is uh, clothesline. Now you can see that uh, having started with symbols that are printed on cloth, the cloth has stayed with me as a motif, you know, throughout or for long, for most of my, uh, my work. But then the thing at the initial stage, what I've been doing is to concentrate more on the content of the cloth rather than its form. It is leopard's cloth. Uh, this is about six six feet high. Aquas surviving children. Uh, this work was created in uh, Copenhagen in 1976 when I was invited to. Uh, now the country was celebrating uh, some centenary of the abolition of slavery. And now, uh, the Dutch did their slavery uh, project only in the Gold Coast, the former Gold Coast, which is now Ghana. Now, so they looked for an artist of Gold Coast or Ghana origin, and they invited me to come. I went to Copenhagen. Now, the interesting thing about this work is not how it looks, but the circumstances through which I went to create it. You know, when I went there for almost two or three weeks, we, st we, we kept going around places that I could find ideal or suitable or inspiring enough for my work and didn't find any. Went to a school, went to even an artist's studio you know, with everything there, but it wasn't inspiring to me until finally somebody who heard what I came for asked my host, have you taken him to the hammer mill? So following day we went to the hammer mill. The hammer mill is a, a forge that have very heavy hammers that uh, they are so heavy that they are operated by water, uh, how do you call it? Well, they are operated by a water device, a device which moves water, yeah. And uh, the water leaves it and then it drops and by its own way. They use it in working on metal for gun nozzles. They make nozzles for guns in that forge. And then when I went in there and I saw the guns, and they were, they, they, because they had a showroom and these guns were there, then my mind immediately flashed back 
in Ghana, we'll talk about then guns. You know, that's some of the, the, the earliest guns that came into uh, my part of the world, and they're from Denmark. And now here was I in a, a forge which probably made a lot of those guns which were brought into Ghana for slavery, you know, for slave raids and other things. So when I went in there, I said, this is where I'm going to work. Now, I had no idea about uh, forging or metal work, but then the place was telltale enough and inspiring enough for me to... Now, that same day that we discovered it, when I was waiting by the beach in order to catch the train to go back to my uh, residence, I saw down, down by the seaside a piece of log washed ashore. So I went down there. When I lifted it up, I saw, wow, this is so this is something that has been out in the sea for long and it has been shaped in a peculiar way. I looked around and I saw a second one and then a third one. So following day, I asked for a vehicle and then went around about 10 kilometers or so and collected all these that uh, were washed ashore by the sea and took them to my to the forge and to see what I could do with them. You know, uh, the forge had fire and it had a lot of metal and all this thing, but since I didn't know what to do with metal uh, and also the material that I collected didn't have much uh, to do with metal, I started using only the fire. I was using the fire to, to burn the smaller pieces and then the idea came that these pieces could be fixed onto the taller ones, and then they became human beings. These are uh, human beings which literally have survived many years or long ages in the sea. You know, they've been exposed to water and air, and I thought that they needed fire to complete the elements, you know, that should make them complete. Uh, so came about the work across surviving children uh, in response to the Danish slavery uh, project in Ghana, in, in the Gold Coast, so many, many years ago. On their fateful journey nowhere, after working with processed wood for a long time, I switched on to, or I started introducing wood that had been used by people, wood that had been put to human use. And the first one that I got in the village that I live were mortars. These are mortars that are buried in the earth, and then a, a lot of pounding takes place in them. There are two types of mortars that are used. This type, and then there is one which is long like a trough, almost like a boat, and then they put things in and trash. And I think that the, the, the mortar symbolizes to me the, the downtrodden, you know, because when they really are okay, are new, they are put to 
very severe beating and uh, all kinds of things. But as soon as they develop any crack or, you know, then they are discarded. Now, these are the ones that I collect and symbolically would raise them, you know, raise them to the upright position, which gives them some more dignity. Uh, now, I collected a lot of these mortars and they were lying in the studio for a long time. I didn't know what to do with them. Normally, material would lie with me for so many uh, months or years before the idea comes what I can do with them. You know, so these were in the room one day when I think something fell and then knocked down several of them. And then all of a sudden I saw that, oh, the, the ones that are left standing appear to be in motion. And the ones which are uh, knocked down well, are out. So I created a paradox of giving the ones which were knocked down legs and the ones which were left standing and therefore in motion, I put pieces of wood on there. I loaded them up with uh, pieces of wood. Now, still working with wood, not quite out of it. Uh, then I discovered uh, this peculiar material, which is actually a uh, grater which is used for grating the staple that we uh, have in our part of the world, cassava. Uh, most tropical countries would have it. In Brazil, I know they have cassava and, uh, and some other places. Now, these are wrapped on wooden cylinders that are put in machines which rotate and grind the, and, 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 and grate the cassava. Now, after so many months of use, they are discarded. And when I collected them, the thing that struck me about them was the fact that they were perforated and therefore you could see through them. You know, uh, so the idea of using them to create a wall came about because to me, a wall is a human construct most of the time, which is meant to hide or conceal or separate, you know, us from spaces and people or from other things. Uh, but at the same time, walls provoke a lot of curiosity. When all of a sudden you are on a path and then a wall crops up, you, you suddenly wonder what is behind the wall. What could be going on behind it there? Uh, and in the process, I think your imagination would leap over the wall and start imagining all kinds of things. You know, In that sense, I think a wall reveals as much as it hides. In that sense, the physical uh, attributes of this uh, medium I thought were very ideal, make it very ideal for creating a wall. Because when you are at the other side of this wall, you will know 
what is you would have a feel of what is happening if there's any motion behind the other side at the other side you will know that there's something there but you don't know precisely what so that idea of both hiding and and revealing both concealing and revealing you know comes to the fore very well with this and i created this uh work which uh, called the uh, initially crumbling uh, wall, the ancient wall, probably because of the rust and all those things, and eventually a crumbling wall. It could be a commentary on even uh, the consumption you know, because I, at times I imagine the quantity of cassava that this number of graters had handled, you know. Now, still working with, or just about starting with working with metals too. Uh, when I started working with metal, or even with my work with metal, I have always... Uh, tried to subvert a certain uh, character that everybody attributes to metal, that is rigidity. I want, it to, I want my metal pieces to be things that you can do a lot of things with. Works that, uh, for instance, don't have any... Uh, fixed form. Now, these uh, were created from leads of milk. Well, we have our milk presented in, in cans, not in bottles, because it's not fresh. Evaporated, uh, evaporated milk in cans. And there's such consumption of it, so much consumption of it that there's so much lead and even the tins themselves. Normally, people would uh, open these and use the tins for other foods, foodstuffs, steaming or other foodstuff and other things. And then the lids are left as, uh, well, trash. So I collect all these things and, uh, and uh, belt them together into form. Uh, when I started working with these and the process of trying to shape them into something was a very long one, and eventually I lifted it one day and kept dropping it, and it formed itself into a peak, you know, a peak, as you can see. Each, each of them, this consists of so many, up to about uh, 90 or so peaks in there, and incidentally, the name or the brand name of the milk that is commonly used is called is, is peak, peak milk. So it's a play on on the on the name or the brand name of that milk, as well as a statement about the peak of consumption or peak of labor. I've been to the market where the people sit down to now open these lids 
and sat down there and uh, saw them do so many in a minute. In a, in a minute, they could come close to 50. 50, you know, they take a knife, go in and in one, one movement, you know, the lead is off. <laughs> you know, I tried it and it was difficult for me. And so I, it's a, a kind of monument to the labor that these people are putting to create this. Still into metal, I discovered these uh, printing plates from some printers in the village there who uh, would normally would print. They, they print books as well, but they, their common fare was obituary announcements. You know, in my part of the world, funerals are very lavishly celebrated. So you got to do big posters and other things to announce and invite people. And so I started, when I went and collected this and took to my studio, me and my assistant saw that a large chunk of this were these funeral announcements. And we were busy reading the material on them because normally they will have uh, the date of birth and all kinds of data about a person, number of children and uh, grandchildren and so on and so forth, and the burial date and all these things. At the end of it, you are reading so much, you, you, you begin to have a kind of demographic profile of, of the place. Well, it's not that we don't know it or that we don't have any idea about it, but lifespan in my part of the world is something like 45, 55, thereabouts. Anyway, don't worry, I'm 65 plus. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know about it, but then handling life material about it is a different thing, you know. So I did a series of work called uh, Waste Paper Bags, talking about the ephemerality, you know, of life, you know, and the fact that it's, it's a lot of waste. It's entitled uh, Open Market. That's uh, one view of it, and another view of it, you know, it's made up of little boxes that I saw on sale in the market, and they say they use it for all kinds of things, trinket box or whatever, any little thing that you want to store, yeah, they keep them in them. And they make them out of uh, used tins for food and all kinds of things. Milo, oval tin, uh, what have you. So you have different colors, you know, of them. Now, when I saw this, they took me back to my secondary school days or high school days because this is a kind of box that you would pack your clothes in to go to school. You know, and here I was seeing them on a mini miniature scale. 
So I created a work. The, the title came about when I went to the market looking for something, and then I saw a flask that was written on it, made in Japan for the EU. Now, this is something made in Japan for the EU, and I'm seeing it in the little market of Nsuka. Then the idea is, oh, this is an open market. It's not a regulated market. It's not a market that this is prohibited, that is prohibited. No, it's, it's open. It's, it's like the continent of Africa is, to me, an open market where all kinds of uh, ideas, ideologies, and what have you uh, are welcome or have come or have been brought, you know, and they are there kind of shaping the, the place. If you take, say, the political structures of countries, for instance, my country has tried the, the Westminster style of, of uh, government, and now I think they have something which is a cross between Westminster and the American one, you know, and so on and so forth, and go to so many countries, the socialist one and all those, all those are on ground over there. So the open market is my kind of uh, reference to that. This is about the first of the bottle cap uh, works that I did. When I started, the idea was to create a sculpture that is so free that you can almost shape it anyhow in any place. And in fact, they are so flexible that they can encompass so much variety of space and and uh, any format you no know. this is uh, the adinkra sasa uh, adinkra which i mentioned earlier on the funeral cloth it normally comes in dark hues Dark green, black, blue, dark blue, uh, dark red, dark brown, you know, and then they are enlivened with narrow strips of very bright primary colors. So that you see that in the beginning, I worked with content of cloth, but at this stage now, what I think I'm doing is more of working with the format of cloth, the free, extensive, and contractive, you know, properties that cloth has. Um, now, working with the bottle caps, initially, we're using the bolder portions of the bottle caps. But as time went on, we saw that there was a huge collection of, of I think they call them the, the stops, the narrow strips that you see when you open the bottle, the narrow strip that is left on the bottle. 
you know, I don't know how it's called. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, so that there are huge collections of it, so we have to uh, have a way of using them. And when we started working with them, we saw that it could contrast very well with and work with this very well. And so this is one example of that, uh, using the bolder and the thinner ones. And as time went on, we devised more and more. I'm using the word we because uh, I now work with huge numbers of people, close to 20, 25, you know. And uh, each of us will keep discovering new things about these uh, bottle caps. So with that, we're able to now get out of the rigidity of, of the bold ones alone and can introduce even a science, for instance, like this, which takes me back to the Adinkra science again. The concentric circle that you see over there is uh, Oh, well, of course, you can see the concentric circle there in the, <laughs> the concent two concentric circles over there. Uh, is called the king of Adinkra. It's one of the most, it's the most uh, conspicuous of all the, of the Adinkra symbols. Anywhere it is used, it, it really draws attention, you know. So I created this work, and it's called Zeshi. That's a sign in my language. Oh, okay. This was in uh, Venice uh, on the Palazzo Fortuny uh, where I was uh, asked to intervene with, with the front of the Palazzo uh, for an exhibition that has something to do with time. Yeah, being that it has something to do with time, I chose to work in this way that you have a form which is very fresh at one end and is faded at the other end, as you can see. Uh, and then, in order to complete the intervention, I wanted to relate it to the building itself by opening portions of it so that you see the old building through it. That's a detail of the lower portion, which is fresh. This is one of the works that uh, I showed in Venice. Uh, the detail of it. And... Yeah, another one in the same place, facing the, the first one I showed. Drying towels. <laughs> um, in... No, 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 uh, then Amsterdam, yeah. No, not Amsterdam, uh, 
Holland. Holland, uh, they have the Sonsbeck Park in Arnhem. And I was invited, uh, well, uh, artists were invited to create a work for this exhibition, which they have every seven years. So the theme of the, the one I was invited to was grandeur. And my thoughts about grandeur, I couldn't think of anything except uh, well, the idea of fresh, freshly washed towels drying in the sun, you know. <laughs> oh, okay. This was done uh, last year in, uh, in the UK, in, uh, in London, in front of the Channel 4 TV studios. Um, they were celebrating 40 years anniversary and decided to invite four artists to take three months each and show an intervention with a large exploded figure four in front of their building. And this was my uh, intervention. It consisted of, uh, I asked for newspaper plates, used newspaper plates that you remember I'd worked with uh, with uh, new, uh, the obituary printing plates. You know, this time I'm working with news, newspaper plates. Uh, my intervention consisted, my concept consisted of having these plates arranged neatly down, and as it gets up, it's in a jumbo. You know, it's like uh, referring to news, which is what I think television stations uh, uh, send out to the world as an item which is best perceived if it is, uh, if it is flashy, like you have a flashing news. <laughs> news is not good if it's not flashing. You know? <laughs> so the idea of, the, the concept is based on that. You know, I had a thing covered from bottom to top, neater in the bottom, and as it gets to the top, it's uh, in a, yeah, this is about the top portion of it. And these are some of the portions down where I asked them to pick very neat, neat uh, plates that people can read things from. You know, so these are the kind of things that people would see when they get close and at human level can read this. But as it gets up, then they'll see something else. And this is the, the full figure and I think that ends it <laughs>